From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Spotify and elsewhere. Also, please be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, at the Journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression. And each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical and broader interest. We speak in depth to people who are leading figures in their field, practitioners, experts, commentators, to give us all a better understanding of the major issues of our times. This week, I'm pleased to say my guest is Wesley Yang, author, essayist, and commentator. Wesley was born to Korean-American parents who were refugees from the Korean War. He's written extensively about modern American politics and culture, and he's emerged as one of the most articulate and thoughtful critics of the prevailing progressive orthodoxy that dominates much of America's public discourse in universities, the media, culture, and elsewhere. In 2019, he came up with the term successor ideology to describe this orthodoxy, and it's a phrase that's caught on widely. It neatly captures, I think, how the emphasis on the ideals and values of identity politics, social justice, anti-racism, and all the other progressive causes have been widely adopted by thought leaders in our society in such a way that they've steadily replaced much of what we knew of as liberalism, classical or modern liberalism, as the dominant political ideology. Wesley's also written at length about the experience of Asian Americans in the United States, including a very influential essay about the young man responsible for the mass shooting at Virginia Tech University in 2007 that killed 32 people. This and other essays were included in his book, The Souls of Yellow Folk, which was published in 2018. He writes regularly for The Tablet and other publications. Of course, he has a podcast, like all of us, and he joins me now. Wesley Yang, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about many things with you, but let's start, as we've all been trying to grapple with the political and cultural changes, the broad, wider, top-level political and cultural changes that we've been seeing in this country and indeed in, to some extent in much of the West in the last decade or so. And I do think your term, successor ideology, captures it extraordinarily well. Again, these ideals of social justice, uh, anti-racism, identity politics around gender and sexuality and all of this, the way in which these have become the, many ways, the dominant themes of so much of our political discourse, but also increasingly the kind of source of the kind of political axes in our political life. That is the sort of dividing line now. We used to divide along sort of economic and class lines, and now we seem to divide on these kind of broader ideological lines. And the other thing, of course, you identify about this very well, and you call it the successor ideology, I think, because it seems to sort of usurp traditional liberalism, the idea that most in its most simplistic form, the ideas of freedom of speech and freedom of expression and all of the things that we understood to be associated with sort of liberal democracy. And instead, we now have this coercive sort of authoritarian, you've described it as an authoritarian utopianism. Can we start off by you just explaining what you mean? I've crudely summarized it, but tell us what this successor ideology is and how it manifests itself in our political discourse now. Sure. There's a sense in which every ideology is a successor ideology in the sense that it is seeking to uh, replace something that comes before it. So Marxism was a kind of successor ideology which held that the promises of freedom of equ and equality, that liberalism could not be actually fulfilled within the framework of the political economy of the 19th century, right? And it held that, you know, there needed to be a uh, transformation in the an end to the private ownership of the means of production in order for liberalism to actually fulfill itself. What I call the successor ideology today refers to its amorphousness and its diffuseness because it consists of a variety of different discourses that meet and converge around a simple principle, which is that society 
is a matrix of interlocking oppressions of the male over the female, of the white over the black, of the straight over the gay, of the cisgendered over the transgendered. And that the purpose of those of us who want to fulfill the promises of freedom and equality contained with liberalism will in fact have to engage in a process of transforming the world on a variety of different levels, but most significantly among them, there is an idea that the way in which we arrive at this pervasive domination of these various categories of the white over the black and the white over the non-white, of the male over the female, and so on, is through a remaking of the language and a remaking of the culture. And so this is an idea that emerged within the left academy in the you know late 1990s, and it proceeded from the assumption that we are all involved in a vast socialization, that at a collective and individual level embeds within us a series of biases that account for the fact ultimately, that we arrive at what we can observe to be group-based, that we can measure various group disparities and outcomes that in themselves prove the fact that we continue to live in white supremacy, we continue to live in patriarchy. So 50 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the enormous expansion of the federal government in order to get rid of what remained of the Jim Crow state, fight segregation, engage in many decades of affirmative action on behalf of non-white minorities. The premise is, is that we remain within white supremacy 50 years after a series of legal reforms that ended what remained of, you know, sort of formal patriarchy in America. I mean, there are people who are still alive today, women who needed to have a male relative, right? Like, uh, you know, sign for their credit card. And in many cases, women did not have legal rights to own property within a marriage that was held separately. There was a process of legal reform that lasted a couple of decades, domestic violence and you know, sort of the force requirement and rape rendered it so that, uh, in fact, as a formal matter, women were not equal citizens in the United States. And there was a process that lasted a couple of decades of legal reform that ended what remained of the prior patriarchal regime, the white supremacist regime. But there is this idea that the vast socialization continues. And in order for us to escape from the sort of continued, like, ghostly presence of patriarchy and white supremacy, we, in fact, have to go after the very things that we once held to be constitutive of our equality as liberal citizens. And so we have to actually make incursions upon the freedom of speech, make incursions upon you know, the institution and the practice of due process. Otherwise, we will continue to remain you know, within these interlocking systems of oppression, which are present at the nano level in terms of just the way that we use the language. So a couple of years ago, the San Francisco... Board of Commissioners passed a resolution saying that in formal documents discussing people released from prison, they will no longer be referred to as convicts or felons or released inmates. They will be referred to henceforth as returning residents. That's actually the official language. And this all comes from this idea that our reality is dominated by language. And if we transform the language, we can transform that reality. This is, as you describe it very well, it's a Marxist or a Marxian construct, isn't it? Because it's the same principle that Marx 
identified, you know, societies being made up of a sort of a dialectic of, you know, of a pressure. One, you know, dominant force in a society, one dominant class in a society oppressing another. And again, you know, in Marxian terms, that was economic, right? That was the capitalist class in oppressing the proletariat. And now, since that was, I think, sort of fundamentally discredited at the end of the Cold War, it does seem as though the intellectual construct, the idea, the fundamental critique of liberal society has continued, but in a different form. Would you agree that it's become so the same idea of oppression that Marxists used to talk about with regard to the oppression of the proletariat, the working class, has now become essentially along these intersectional race and gender lines? So it is basically a form of continuation of Marxism by the words, is it not? Well, I think it shares something in common with Marxism. And that's why I mentioned that Marxism was a successor ideology. But what sort of distinguished Marxism was the view, and this is what Marxism was fighting against, against the bourgeois utopians of this time, right? That it's actually sort of the core conflict is that between capital and labor. Whereas the successor ideology that we have today that focused upon identitarianism and so on has been very easily adopted by those who are at the commanding heights of our capitalist system. And so now we have, you know, sort of Angela Davis giving a speech at Goldman Sachs. We have BlackRock, right, like and others engaged in the same kind of annual and it seems to take up an ever larger share of each year's calendar of, uh, you know, rainbow messaging and signaling of various kinds. And so we see the emergence of a kind of woke capitalism that doesn't seem to be in any way, right, aimed at undermining or subverting the core capitalist relation. It just has redefined the utopia they have in mind as one in which there is proportional representation, right? Like, you know, within the ownership class, within the upper reaches of the managerial classes of various identities. And so it shares something very important in common with Marxism, but it also deviates pretty drastically in it. And because of that deviation, we see the easy adoption, right? Like by the heads of various capitalist entities, of the language, of the signaling, and, you know, even of some of the policies surrounding it. And so right now we see the ratings agencies, right, starting to, you know, score uh, corporations on the basis of various diversity and inclusion measures. So we're seeing a funny kind of hybrid here that I think is what is sociologically so fascinating about successor ideology. Prior to the summer of 2020, I think it would have surprised a lot of people to have Angela Davis speaking at Goldman Sachs. We were actually at a point where the places that tend to have junior staffers who have gone through the indoctrination mills of our elite universities tend to be the ones where actually Angela Davis is more likely than in any other setting, right, to have a welcome and a rapt audience that management feels that they need to speak to slash placate by hosting such an event. How did we get to the situation where you, again, you described very well that Angela Davis speaking to investment banks or the extraordinary phenomenon that we see in our universities today. We've just seen more examples of it in the last week or two of you know people essentially being forced out because they don't conform to the ideology, to the prevailing orthodoxy. There's always been intellectual academic battles. It's always fair to say that in the culture, kind of left-leaning, sort of progressive, but not always, but for the last sort of generation or so, at least the left has kind of dominated. But it seems to have gone beyond the point of just a kind of pluralism of ideas with maybe progressives kind of dominating in some of the cultural institutions. Again, what you describe as this sort of authoritarian utopia that we seem to have, how did that come about? Well, I think there was a long march through the institutions. 
And there was an original attempt by the traditional uh, mainstream liberals of the time, you know, in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, academic administrators, many of whom were quite progressive by any kind of typical standard, who tried to kind of create a cordon sanitaire within academia around the upsurge of ideas, identitarian and otherwise, that started to manifest within universities, movements for various identity studies, for gender studies, for disability studies, for right now we're seeing a new branching off, it's called fat studies. And very interesting that fat is a word that has to be recuperated and insisted upon rather than euphemized away, you know, within this system, because usually they euphemize certain words. But in this case, you know, there is a movement of fat acceptance. Just a little aside on this, you know, if you want to talk about like what is successor ideology, what is not successor ideology? Like standard liberal humanism would take the view which I generally tend to agree with, that like when it comes to questions of weight, you know, we shouldn't be presenting anorexic teenagers as a normative, right, in the pages of our fashion magazine, and that we should not be kind of valorizing various fad diets that turn out to be very unhealthy, and the culture should not be obsessed with unrealistic standards of beauty concerning being really skinny. But when you cross over and you actually say it's more damaging psychologically to someone's self-esteem and thus to their underlying health to insist upon the scientific and medical ideology around the greater risks that you bear for heart and other kinds of diseases, particularly in the age of COVID, like if you are overweight. And successor ideology thus is one where we see that there is a movement within institutions of activist professionals working alongside the class of professional activists who have now institutionalized themselves and through various donor-funded nonprofit sector, are able to create these critiques that are utterly detached from reality, utterly detached from any kind of majoritarian political support, and respond only to the idiosyncratic interests of various cause-oriented donors. And what those cause-oriented donors have done is create an archipelago of institutions that have a symbiotic relationship with the Democratic Party that provide its staffers, and that as a whole, what these organizations that have done, who would otherwise be a kind of bickering conjuries of single-issue movements, is they have articulated this unity of oppression thesis that intersectionalism allows them to do. And so the idea is this kind of synthetic contrivance of convenience that serves a particular purpose of a particular class. And that class is a class of office seekers, of a certain kind of holder, of a certain kind of college graduate, who is seeking a living, sinecures, consultancies, various job opportunities within a growing sector of moral entrepreneurialism. So there's a combination of a couple of things that happened. There was a long march through the institutions where they tried to create a cordon sanitaire around identity studies. Instead, what they did was create echo chambers, right? Echo chambers that were not penetrated by any kind of criticism or any kind of outside scrutiny, where explicit activist doctrine was able to credential itself because they were able to create their own journals and create a whole body of pseudo-knowledge, right, about how, you know, the gender binary was invented by Western colonialists and imposed around the world. This is something that you can hear, right, like highly credentialed academics 
just stating as a fact, like stating it as axiomatic and central to their worldview, claiming that sort of gender fluidity was the kind of, you know, foundational state of places like India. And of course, there's not zero evidence for the fact of greater gender fluidity in places like Polynesia and India and so on before the emergence of British colonialism and sort of Victorian Christianity. There's not nothing to it, right? But it has now become this kind of counter dogma that we are simply in the process of returning ourselves to an entirely mythological state past the kind of oppression that was once imposed upon us by the existence of uh, distribution of sexual characteristics, right, linked to human biology. So all of this pseudo-knowledge was created, and then a couple of things happened at the same time. One, the internet managed to be a vector through which these ideas were spread to young people, and they were spread to a particular kind of young person. They were spread to the young people who were most interested in the humanities, liberal arts, political activism, journalism, writing, and so forth. And so the people who were radicalized on Tumblr with these ideas and who came to accept them as axiomatic, the idea that we still live in white supremacy 50 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the successes of the civil rights movement, and the people who believe that the existence of uh, right a gender binary was a form of oppression that our society has to overcome, they developed a class consciousness for themselves, and they moved into media, and they filled the junior ranks, and they brought with them techniques of activism that they had developed from universities with activist sensibilities. And at a certain point, you know, in my view, right around 2014, it reached a kind of critical mass. And then in 2016, of course, there was the Trump election, and the Trump election seemed to vindicate in the eyes of many not just those who already believe these things, but a broader cross-section of the, you know, liberal public who came to be very disturbed and upset by this exogenous shock in their narrative of progress that had only, right, a couple of years ago culminated in the election to the U.S. presidency, uh, the second term of America's first black president. There was a model there in mind, and eventually this thing that was kind of held in check by traditional liberals who were still in charge, most of whom were still, you know, older white guys, found that they had no other grounds in the midst of the moral emergency in which we were held to be in the midst of, right, of the Trump years, babies in cages and so on, right, and literal Russian agent, etc. Trump was seen as a sort of a validation of this. There is now significant pushback against this. You know, you're an outspoken critic. There are a lot of people who are very, you know, thoughtful and outspoken critics of it. There are some indications that even in some of these kind of woke corporations that maybe they're starting to realize that actually this intolerant authoritarianism that many of their staff seem to be following maybe is not the way to go. So you're seeing a little bit of pushback at Netflix and some other news organizations. But do you think it really is a fundamental threat and could actually end up essentially displacing, or has it already maybe displaced, the sort of liberal democratic society that we grew up with? So the way I like to frame this is that right around... 1985, 1986, two things happened within fairly obscure corners of academia. One of them was the foundation of the Federalist Society and the beginning of a long march through the institutions for the conservative legal movement. And that movement basically reached its destination right around 2019, 2020, when they obtained a majority of 
movement-aligned lawyers on the Supreme Court. But something else was happening right around that time, which was they were the first symposia on what was then called the new movement within legal academia called critical race theory, right? And, you know, sort of critical race theory held that we must not take for granted ideas of rationality, of free speech, if we actually want to talk about obtaining reality in concrete terms in a society that has always been systemically racist and that continues to be systemically racist. And that entailed a long march through various institutions. It was not a march that I think that the original founders anticipated would happen, but it happened in elementary schools, right? Like they captured schools of education, they captured schools of social work, they captured the discipline of psychology and so forth. And that long march through the institutions actually came to its fruition right around the year 2019 or 2020, because it was then that various school districts started to roll out a whole new curriculum that took as axiomatic, you know, these views that we all can be situated upon a hierarchy of oppression, and these are the ways in which you're an oppressor, these are a way in which you are oppressed, and you can tally these things up. We're going to engage in this exercise where we discover our intersectional identity, and we're third graders, right? Like, this is what we're going to do with our young people. And so the process of radicalization that happened spontaneously through Tumblr and within universities slowly is now in the process, right, of being presented as axiomatic to a rising generation of Americans and to a rising generation of Americans who are already majority non-white. And so if you look at, you know, the ethnic studies curriculum that is going to be mandated in California, California is a state that is, I believe there are more Hispanics than there are white people in California. But if you look at the distribution of wealth uh, in California, right, like it's very heavily, you know, in the possession, a small group of much older (laughs) white liberals who run and own everything in that state. And and right now what is being taught is there have been revisions that were done when sort of the more or less explicit, definitely very implicitly anti-Semitic bias of that curriculum was objected to by Jewish groups. And it looked for a while like there was going to be significant political resistance against it. But, you know, that thing is in place. And what they are teaching is that society is a matrix of interlocking oppressions, right? And they're doing it to a state that has that population structure. What will happen as a result? I'm not really sure. What I think will happen, though, is that the sort of cohorts that entered into the professional world around 2014 and 2015 of young people who were driven by the passions of the successor ideology, they were able to really transform the character of journalism. They're now facing some pushback within institutions like the New York Times, right? Like there's one or two guys at the Times who are able to like acknowledge reality. But like there's another person that's able to like acknowledge reality around masks and so on. And so like one guy is the pushback. And so what I would say is that, yes, there's pushback. There does seem to be an awareness that things went too far. It was crazy that we allowed you to drive our op-ed editor out of the newsroom because he published an essay saying that, you know, we need the National Guard to keep order in the midst of riots. That's a problematic principle to have made the center of liberal discourse now that we're dealing with J6. And so people are recognizing that many things that are going to be politically perilous for the Democratic Party, that are going to be a problem for maintaining the legitimacy around these various institutions— 
is a problem. The meltdown that just happened at the Washington Post, you know, it's like a frivolous story. It doesn't matter, but of course it matters because it is the story of ideological succession. It is the story of people who are driven by the new moral passions that are seeking hegemony within our institutions. Now, there was pushback, right? Like a person actually did go too far to the point where they were held to be harassing their colleagues, and that person was fired, right? But that person was fired after just like, you know, going on an incredible tear. Not everybody goes on an incredible tear in public. I think she was fired for not, not anything to do with the underlying substance of the issues, but for being just obviously completely out of line in terms of trashing all of her colleagues. I mean, I think even the sort of the successor ideologues probably don't want people out there kind of actually undermining the cohesion of their institutions. We should be clear. I mean, it's not trivial. I think it is important, but I think that's why she was fired. Again, not because of any sort of change of heart on the part of the proprietors or the editors at the Washington Post, but because she just was completely out of line in the end. She went too far, but she also demonstrated an aspect of this ideology is that it does encourage these struggle sessions and these meltdowns, and it did it at the Times. You know, there are some green shoots of that, right, at the Journal that I think the the op-ed page versus the staff, and you'll see how you guys manage it. I think that you may well have learned something from the prior examples of those who immediately caved. And of course, being to some degree a publication constrained to speak to the world of business and so on, but we actually are seeing with ESG and all this, the extent to which this is actually, you know, sort of uh, penetrated into the world of business as well. You know, the HSBC, you know what I'm referring to? The, um, uh, the, the director, right, of... First, saying, we're not all going to burn in hell three years tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. You know, climate change is not an investment risk, is what he ended up saying. You know, I guess in that job, you actually can't say that thing, whether or not it's true. Your job is to be an ideological enforcer within the institution. And so this is the point. We have ideological enforcers within every institution, and we have an entrepreneurial project to generate more and more ideological enforcers within various institutions. And so if we want to talk about an end to this phenomenon, we have to talk about, well, what would it look like and what would it take? And from where would the energy come to drive out the ideological enforcers from all of these institutions? And if you don't have a good answer of how that will be done, we will know that this is going to be a remora attached to the fin of our society for as long as that continues to be the case. We've got to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with also Wesley Yang. Stay with us. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com F-O-E-F podcast to secure your spot. Welcome back. We're talking with Wesley Yang about the successor ideology, the progressive orthodoxy that seems to rule so much of our modern world. In the time we have, I want to discuss a little bit the Asian-American politics and I think some fascinating things are going on there, which are obviously, of course, not unrelated to this topic. But just finally on the successor ideology question, is there a danger that the pushback, if you like, the resistance to the successor ideology 
is not a reversion that those who are urging a sort of reversion to the glorious days of sort of classical political liberalism, but but an authoritarianism of the right, if you like, because you're seeing, I mean, again, this is this larger critique that a lot of people have of what's happened to liberal democracy, that yes, it's under threat, you know, in, in exactly the way you've described from this progressive authoritarianism, but at the same time, it's also under threat from conservatives who, for a variety of reasons, have found, you know, liberalism to be sort of flawed in all kinds of ways and increasingly embracing this sort of authoritarianism. Is the ground on which people like you, I think, and I think I and others stand, which is for you know the defence of traditional pluralism, liberal democracy as we understood it. All of those things is that ground shrinking to a point where we're going to be sort of squeezed on both sides by an authoritarian right and an authoritarian and intolerant left. It's definitely a danger, and it's all the more important for those who want to stand on behalf of the traditional, you know, liberal system to hold in check those who would create the openings for an authoritarian right. And an authoritarian left absolutely does create openings for an authoritarian right. And of course, to witness the elaboration of these ideas as they move their way through the public square is to see the failures of a center to hold in check the emergence of the authoritarian utopianism of the left, and thus the emergence of an authoritarian utopianism of the right that ends up, of course, in turn feeding the authoritarian utopianism of the left. And so to be caught in that pincer movement. And I think this actually is a very bad thing. However, we are seeing some instances of pushback, and this takes us to the Asian-American thing. If you want to talk about what happened in San Francisco, which is sort of, San Francisco is the vanguard city, and San Francisco was for a few years the incarnation of the successor ideology in power, right? So you had people on the Board of Education who kept schools closed for a year and a half, while they dithered and engaged in a proposal to, you know, rename all of their schools in order to purge, you know, various problematic historical figures, including Diane Feinstein, right, and uh, Abraham Lincoln, among others. And three of those members who led those charge, one of whom sort of had been revealed to use the word house N-word, right, to refer to Asian Americans in a tweet, were driven from office by a resounding vote of the public, mostly driven by an Asian American public for whom, you know, education is an important goal. And the same group moved from triumph to triumph by driving out the scion of a post-1960s like armed terrorist group who managed to get himself installed into the role of district attorney and who oversaw what normal residents of San Francisco came to see as a marked diminution in their quality of life as the city became an open-air drug market and a place where there's an online human feces map that, that was put on as a stunt. But, you know, th that became like more highly populated than in the past because enforcement of quality of life claims plummeted under the direction of a district attorney who made it clear that he would not be enforcing any of those kinds of things as in pursuit of what he called equity. And so in both of these recalls, in both of these exercises of the democratic will of the people, Asian Americans who are not really a political factor anywhere in the country except for San Francisco, a place where they are one third of the population, and except for a state of California where they're 15% of the population and they hold a certain important balance in those circumstances where they are able to achieve consensus and pursue a political goal. And we saw that happen in San Francisco. We saw, uh, you know, a move toward the right in voting in New York City, where actually, you know, Asian Americans are an important political voting bloc 
as well. So we're starting to see an emergence of not just with Asian Americans, but also with Hispanics, right? Because there was this idea that there was going to be a non-white identity that would end up serving as the basis of a permanent, you know, democratic majority. That doesn't seem to be the case. And so the author of the book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, who wrote it in 2004, his name is uh, Roy Teixeira, has a substack, you know, where he records the dissolution of his own ideas. And so there are individual polls showing that an absolute majority of Hispanics would support Trump over Biden in the next election, which if that or something on the order of that or something of that kind were to happen, it would be an absolute political earthquake. It would mean the end of a, a particular kind of scenario and a transformation of the politics of the country. Well, I want to conclude with this final question and thought that maybe this is in the end where the successor ideology fails. And in one of the greatest sort of ironies of intellectual history, that having supposedly pursued this aggressive authoritarian ideology on behalf, enlisting minorities into it unasked, by the way, but, you know, whether it's Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and of course, African Americans, that, that it actually... We're seeing increasingly, we saw it in San Francisco with Asian Americans, as you say, just as you've described exactly, we're seeing it with Hispanics generally across the country, very, very low approval ratings for the Democratic Party, absolute rejection of some of the sort of linguistic fantasies of this ideology, such as the, you know, the word Latinx. We know that you know when Latinos are asked whether they like the term Latinx, about 3% say they do. And even African Americans, there's sometimes that particularly over issues of crime and policing and law enforcement and all of this stuff that people like Chesa Boudin and those dem progressive Democrats believe in, that even African Americans are rejecting that. So in, is it possible that in the ultimate irony of, as I say, of kind of intellectual history, that this whole successor ideology is itself a kind of an example of white elitism that may well fail precisely because the people, again, whom it's supposed to be advancing, who are the supposedly oppressed people it's supposedly advancing, actually find many of its tenets absolutely intolerable. Right. So you have this archipelago of nonprofit organizations, I call them astroturf, interest groups that purport to speak on behalf of various identities identity groups that don't actually speak on behalf of those identity groups. And so we're seeing at the polls a repudiation of the prescriptions of that group. And of course, that group is what comprises what I call the successor coalition. Those who are engaged in this project of moral entrepreneurialism who need to, in order to, to keep singing for their supper, they need the country to continue to believe that we still live in white supremacy and patriarchy. We're seeing the process by which those on whose behalf they're supposed to speak are revealing that like, no, of course you do not speak for me. And I think that is eventually going to happen. It's going to take a few cycles of repudiation, but even at the end of it, all of these donor-funded organizations can continue to exist. They're going to continue to be minting graduates of their programs who will need jobs, and those jobs will be taken as a pound of flesh from various corporations who will pay their tribute in the form of having their ideological enforcers on board. So while American electoral politics may change, you're still going to have to go to DEI training and be put through the exercises and mouth the slogans or not. That's going to continue to be a facet of bourgeois life throughout the United States, the Anglosphere, and throughout the broader West in the years to come. Well, that's not the best note on which to end, but we've managed to inject a little note of optimism there. Wesley Yang, uh, really, uh, again, author of the term successor ideology and author of books and commentary, which really dissect brilliantly and anatomize pathologies of our modern progressive world. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. And please do join us again next time for another exploration of the issues that are driving our world. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>